Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 83 was recorded live September 22nd, 2011. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, and here's a few of the stories we'll be covering tonight. We have uh, a revisit of last week's tank blast. Uh, Line Bay residents want to stop tourists. Uh, the longest scuba dive in freshwater, and also uh, a scuba shop that's staying afloat. And I would like to welcome our guests. This week we have Mac, our dive mentor. How are you doing, Mac? Doing very well, thank you. And we also have Claire, the dive bunny. How are you doing today, Claire? Good morning. I'm very well, indeed. Great. Oh, it's been a while since all three of us have been together. It's nice to, to have everybody on. Mac, Mac, Mac was uh, diving up north, and uh, Claire, you've been getting a bunch of diving in? We have, yes. Um, south, I guess. <laughs> yeah, lots of diving at the moment. It's just the end of summer, so we've been actually very busy, which is great. Now, do, does your season taper off? Does is summer busy, or is that your slow time? Um, the peak of summer is only a little bit slower, but um, September, October are peak months because the real heat of summer has come off slightly and the water's still warm, so we're still seeing lovely stuff and it's, you know, everyone's still nice and comfortable in shorties, so yeah, it's still nice and warm, ideal conditions. Summer can get a little bit too fierce, but the season actually goes all year round. It's a little bit quiet in maybe January. Once everyone's realised they spent too much over Christmas. No. <laughs> and, and that's also February, March. January, February, March are our coldest months. Yeah, they're, they're like a British summer, so I can't say they're that cold. Well, that doesn't sound too bad to me. <laughs> no, Matt, Matt, that's when we got to do our trip. we got to do, we got to do it in January, February. Yeah. I'd like to be down there anytime. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll go ahead and uh, get the news out of the way. Uh, we have a revisit of one of the articles from last week. That was the one, if you remember, we had the, the scuba tank that exploded. Not a whole lot of new information. One bit of information that we did get was that the tank that exploded appeared to be new. There were three tanks in the house. Uh, one exploded, and there were two others. They have gone back, and if you're also, if you remember, the, there was a, he would, had allegedly stolen a dive reel. And uh, they now have gone through and determined that these two tanks that didn't explode were stolen. They're still waiting back to hear on the other one whether it was stolen or not. So not sure if that plays a factor in at all on the explosion of the tanks, but uh, kind of makes for a little bit interesting and interest into the story. The next one up is we have um, this was just a little blog post or a, an article. This is in the uh, Sun Sentinel. And uh, it was what I. The reason I brought this one up is uh, it was a somebody who had been diving and he had kind of an accident. And being a writer, he was talking about some of the comments he had, which it went from people were thankful to that he survived to they thought that he should never get in the water. But uh, what had happened is uh, he had gone down to the bottom. And he had a tear in his inflator, and he rents his dive gear, and he wasn't able to get up. But because he was diving with his dive buddies, they were able to 
help him. They saw that he was having some problems, went over, determined what it was. So they went and did a control descent, the two guys doing the buoyancy. And then they even did a safety stop and went to the surface. But uh, there's a, a lot of uh, comments. You know, people are asking about different ways to approach it. You know, they wondered why he did that instead of uh, dropping his dive belt. Somebody else recommended that he should drop a weight at a time. Um, and then other people were talking about gear. They said that's why you don't rent gear. Or that's why you should own. So uh, what, what's your thoughts uh, on this, Claire Mac? Well, I'll chime in because I had that same problem this week. Oh, this week? Yeah. Um, it's just so funny that it came up. I didn't realize that my inflator hose was cracked, but I noticed that when I was down there working, I, I hear these bubbles. I turn and look up to see where the bubbles were coming from, and they would stop. And I really never really thought much about it. I thought I had a stuck valve. You know, when you pull your inflator hose down, you've uh-huh. got something that it'll, it'll burp. Well, I thought I was doing something to make it burp. So when I did finally get back up and finish my job, I inspected my gear. It looked good. So I inflated it to dry it out, unhooked the straps, so it went fully out, and then deflated. I heard the And it's like, what the heck is that? So I looked over my gear, and exactly where the um, corrugation on the hose fit into the valve was, was cleanly cut, like two-thirds through And when that arm would become up a little bit, it would start purging my valve or purging my BC at the top left. Oh, wow. I um, So I was one of those, well, you know, had I been somewhere else doing something different, that could have been very interesting. Yeah. Well, like hey, Go ahead, Claire. There's been a little ridges in the corrugation as they can split over time, and, and it does happen, you know. You can look after your kits and rinse your kit every single day, but stuff, it, things do wear out, don't they? And it's, it's not to do with it being rented kit with this guy. But yeah, I'm glad you're okay, Mac. Well, we were diving wrecks at 100 feet or so last week, and it's like I'm just as soon have it happen in, in shallow water than deeper water. Certainly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, then that's another good case of why we should keep our gear up. But even in the best cases, keeping your gear up, you just have to be prepared to handle those type of situations. So uh, my thought is how this diver and his buddies did it. It was exactly how you do, how you do it. You know, they were in eight, two feet of water, and they helped them up and controlled the ascent. And you know, that's what that's why we buddy dive. Yeah, it's exactly. To be honest, it they describe exactly the way I did it. I don't know if you remember. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Months in Dahab, I had it, this happen to a diver. His inflator, his deflator valve had become detached from his BCD, so it was completely purging air. And and there was me and uh, his buddy, and actually the leader of his group came over and helped as well. And we just made sure we got into the surface. And it, likewise, we did a safety stop, and we opted in that instance not to drop the weights. There, there's always more than one way to resolve a situation. Yes, he could have dropped his weights, but he would have flown up very fast. Um, he could have tried doing it one by one, but that's a little bit difficult when they're all attached to a weight belt and flooding them one by one. Plus, you've also got a vertical wall in this instance, and we had divers below us. So this chap might have been in the same situation. If you've got divers below, you've got to be careful about just randomly dropping the weight. I know in an emergency you might have to, but there's always more than one way to skin a cat, isn't there? Certainly, and it just keeping your wits about you when that something like that happens and, and thinking it through. Well, the, the reciprocal of that that we've had happen before 
is instead of not being able to inflate your, your VC, you had an automatic inflate that you can't stop. Mm -hmm. We've had the river too, especially in the winter when it's cold. We've had them freeze open, you know, freeze as you're purging it, not purging it, but putting yeah. air in it. That to me is much more dangerous than having it that I can't inflate. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I have no I'm control of the time you realize what's going on. You're going up, baby. Exactly. Yeah, we can yeah. also have that happen where, you know, if you're under the ice, I mean, that can be kind of a challenge when you're sitting there, you know, cause you're, you're gonna rock it up right to that ice and then have to figure out how you move, maneuver your way over the hole being way overly buoyant. That could be very bad under the ice because you'd smack your head on the, on the surface. Exactly. And the world hurts. Mm. Those are good topics for discussion at the, at the meeting sometimes. So what, you know, the what ifs, what do you do? You know, be prepared for something like that. Talk about it once in a while. Well, that's part of the thing that people should be doing with their dive buddies. Uh, if you have somebody you're diving with frequently, uh, maybe you didn't go through the course together, but just to kind of gauge uh, preparation. I mean, that's a lot of things we do in other other businesses or life as you prepare for bad situations and you talk through it so that when they happen, you know how to respond. So, yeah, no, that's that's great advice. Yeah, so it's not such a shock to the system. Next up, we have Lions Bay residents want to stop tourists from entering a small beach. And uh, this, is a scene, this is from the Vancouver Sun. And uh, what, what, what really got me on this, it just seems to be kind of a, a trend that we're seeing of locals in an area wanting to block visitors from coming in and using the site. And uh, they say a number of issues have emerged, including parking, overcrowding behavior, and the process of getting set stage. Um, a group of Lion Bay residents want to restrict access to the public beach to stop the deluge, the deluge of tourists who feel they're ruining the beach for locals. Um, uh, some people complained about parking violations. This one I thought was interesting. A fine <laughs> layer of muck on the surface of the water and overflowing washrooms, facilities, and garbage cans. One resident complained, I don't let my kids roam freely because the people are often questionable. Uh, the park is owned and serviced by Lions Bay and not controlled by the Metro Vancouver Park System. And the people in the area saying the beach can't support the current level of visitors. The residents have asked the village to put up a sign that says private club sign. Uh, and they've also talked about reinstating a gate requiring to show residence pass. Uh, the local politicians are saying a restriction would have to be applied to all patrons. They said they could put something up that said only 30 people allowed on the beach at a time. But they aren't allowed to say only people from this part of Canada or village can come. Now, the kind of the scuba twist on this other than beach access, is a few years ago they passed a law that said that, uh, let's see if I can find it. Uh, in 2009, passed helped pass a law that by, uh, law, a bypass restricting visiting scuba diving at Kelvin Grove Beach to Lion Bay residents and their guests, which seemed to counter what the uh, uh, individual up above had said, that it, they wouldn't be allowed to discriminate based on location. Seems a bit challenged. Yeah. Yeah. We we run into this. Uh, and then the final little bit of it is that uh, uh, Nelson said that she is speaking up because many, many residents only found out about the scuba bylaw after the story broke in the media. So. Well, I like the last article, the last part of that. Yeah. 
where she says, why I think so many of us are angry this time around is because Lions Bay is a fantastic community. This type of thinking is a small group of residents who live around the beaches and seem to have a sense of entitlement. Yeah, well, and, th- and that's what it sounds like. And we run into that all over, not just in, in uh, you know, lakes and rivers, but we run into that out here. I live in the middle of, you call it middle of nowhere, but it's, it's perfect. It's, I've got horses. If you're going to have horses, you want to live in the country. So we live out here, and what will happen is you'll have these little homes which are on a quarter acre of property. Now, that some farmer in the 50s or 60s, when he got tough, decided to sell a little lot to somebody so they could live out in the country. And what do those people on that little quarter acre do? They try to dictate what thousands of acres around them are able to do. When you can run your tractor, when you can do whatever, what kind of animals you're going to have. So... You know, people got to respect. I mean, if you live next to water, you have to realize that people are going to use the beach. And in Michigan and many of the United States is that that area of water between low tide, high tide or that wave area, that is freely accessible. You can navigate on that. Somebody can't bar you or prevent you from doing that. Much to the chagrin of people with uh, multi-million dollar homes on lakefront. So this is something. Pardon me? You even have that here in Egypt. I live on a cliff, my garden, it's not my garden, I don't see. but it stops at certain points and then there's about you know, 20 feet, 30 feet, where no one's allowed to put a fence or anything, it's public property, yeah? and it leads down to the beach, and the beach is public, and we can't stop people going on there, and that's good, it should be like that. Public means public. Yeah. Exactly. So this is the type of stuff we got to keep our eyes on wherever you're at. And if you're in an area and you run into that, let us know. We'd love to hear it. I'm not saying that we're going to be able to do anything, but we can uh, publicize. And also it'd be nice to kind of get some group of people with similar interests together to be heard, you know, keep these facilities open for access. And then next up we have the longest scuba dive in fresh water. Uh, Alan Sherrod, he set a world record. This is out of Groveland, Florida. Uh, diver and longtime scuba instructor Alan Sherrod, 47, of Groveland, Florida, emerged from Lake David after 120 hours, 14 minutes, and 11 seconds. So you don't have to do the calculation. That's a little over five days, setting a new world record for the longest scuba dive in open fresh water. So uh, needless to say, I think in that amount of time, you might prune up a bit. I think so. <laughs> well, I had a couple other issues that could have been awkward during five days in the water. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's always those ne- necessary, at least for me, necessary bodily functions that have to happen, uh, consuming food and liquids and then the other way. So, and then the uh, byproducts that they have to deal with. So, uh, yeah. Imagine liquids are not a huge deal if it's got a valve, but yeah, yeah. I haven't <laughs> heard the other sure. the other valve. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining they're probably <laughs> there is. <The> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, did he use a, a helmet or did he use just a regular regulator? Do you know? I'm looking. I don't see. Because um, uh, I mean, you can't stay awake that long. No. So that's that's helmet, true. I can understand how you could, you could, you know, with a, and he's only 12 feet down on a platform. So if you had a helmet on and a chair, you could sit in it and you could actually sleep. <laughs> so, well, haven't you ever done that? Well, let me rephrase that. Have you been on a long deco and you sit there and you just doze if you got a full face on? No, I haven't had a full face, but <laughs> okay. Mac, you're scaring me. I'm, I'm <laughs> when you were commercial diving, I'm taking right. that that could occasionally happen. <laughs> 
with a helmet. You, you could you could catch a couple of Z's. <laughs> the nearest I got to that was I did a divathon where we did we did it in motors over 24 hours. So we had someone in the water for 24 hours, and I think we did an hour and a half on each stint with three hours circling in between. And around about this time in the morning, actually, was not one of my stints. And they'd heated the pool right up to 32 degrees so that we didn't get cold. But we were really close to falling asleep. But that was just a normal, normal mouthpiece-type regulations. <laughs> but that was, yeah, when you've got nothing but tiles to look at. And by that stage, we'd realised we couldn't run the compressor at night. So we were trying to save tanks. So we didn't, couldn't be too active down there. So you just start sort of playing hangman in the slate. But that was quite sneezy. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I could, I could do what this guy did. Uh, he I said, I was, I, "Go ahead." I'd have got cold. <laughs> <laughs> he says, "I was glad to see the sun it had been gloomy down there, 20 feet below the depths for the last five days. I was glad to see everybody out here supporting him." Uh, he was raising money for the Wounded Warriors organization, pursuing diving efforts. Uh, he was assisted by safety divers, Grove, Groveland Fire Rescue medics, police officers, family members, friends, and strangers all kept a close watch on him. Throughout the dive, he had a computer monitor and keyboard specially rigged up to watch movies, listen to music, log on to Facebook until it leaked and stopped working. So the hardest part was not uh, talking and joking around with anyone for all those hours. <laughs> he said the hardest part physically was getting through the night hours, but mentally it was just the waiting and not talking to anybody. After a while, it gets well. Let's just say I'm not the patient person. And this is a milestone for me having to go that long without talking, laughing, and being active. He had built up so much nitrogen in his body from being underwater this time that he had to spend hours hooked up to oxygen tanks to adjust back to life on land. For the last five days, he had survived on a liquid diet of Ensure and Gatorade. So I, yeah, I, I think that's what he was doing. But uh, yeah, I think I think eventually you'd have some some problems later on. So uh, congratulations for that, for him, and he was doing it for a good cause. Yeah. And then since we're talking about good causes, we have scuba diving may benefit those with spinal cord injuries. A preliminary study finds that scuba diving may improve muscle movement, touch, touch sensitivity, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, and people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, this was announced at the Paralyzed Veterans of American Conference in Orlando, Florida. Uh, the study involved 10 wheelchair-dependent disabled veterans who'd suffered spinal cord injuries, averaging 15 years earlier, and who underwent scuba dive certification. Pre-dives checked the participants' muscle, uh, let's see, plasticity. Motor control, sensitivity to light touch pinpricks, plus de depression, objective compulsive order, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Eight people completed the program, and the study also included nine health controls who served as dive buddies. Among the disabled vents, researchers found that an average of 15% drop in muscle plasticity, an average 10% increase in light touch sensitivity, an average of 5% jump in sensitivity of pinpricks. No one in the control group experienced any neurological changes. Uh, mental health side of things, uh, this post-traumatic stress disorder decreased an average of 80%, which could not be attributed to the fact they're scuba diving, but done in a lovely Caribbean setting. Uh, what we saw in the water strongly suggests that some scuba facilitating restoration of neurological and physiological functions and paraplegics. So I, I think what he just said is it helped. I remember hearing a story like this about three years ago, about a car, and it's, and it's such a long time ago that I don't have any details, unfortunately, but I remember hearing about a guy who literally was almost paralyzed and would go for a week's holiday diving, and he'd be fine for another six months to a year or so. 
happens. Every so often he'd go diving and he really picked like there's no explanation for the reasoning behind this or you know, why it was that the diving was affecting it. That's brilliant. It is. It's it's absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. And we've had uh uh, dive heart on before and i think we got to have them back on again have him uh jim elliott come back on and uh talk about that program because that's some of the things that they're doing it seems like there should be more studies on this i mean with all the crazy things that we get grants together to go study this is something that would really be nice to have some good data to back this up i mean imagine this for therapy you know how much how much more cost effective it would it be to go and take somebody in these conditions diving to relieve depression where they might have medication and just a much better quality of life. Yeah. And well, how I, much I, more help? Sorry, Matt, go. <laughs> go ahead, Claire. No, no, you go, Mac. <laughs> I, I was thinking uh, in reverse there. Hyperbaric treatment, they use a lot of oxygen therapy for uh, muscular and nerve damage. And I, I can see that from the aspect of diving also, especially if you had an enriched, maybe it's helping saturate the tissues better. The other aspect I thought maybe in concert, though, is the lack of uh, weight, meaning you have that weightlessness aspect that take uh, the pressure off of point and joint, uh, little places where you may have bone spurs, nicking the spine. I, I think that's where you're getting a lot of the benefit from also, you know, as a therapeutic aspect. You know, and Mac, I, I have to agree with that. Uh, you know, if if anybody follows chiropractic and they, and they do any of that, that's a lot of the principles of chiropractic care is just that, you know, adjust. Because you know, a lot of these, if you had, if you're paraplegic, you've most likely had some sort of spinal cord damage. And that's what your chiropractor is trying to do when they're doing adjustment. Yeah, they're making you feel better, but they're also trying to get those signals that your body is sending through your spinal cord to be working correctly. So it makes perfect sense that diving would help that. Yeah, definitely. And I can say from, um, uh, you know, I, I don't believe I suffer from depression or any of these conditions, but I always feel a thousand times better whenever I go diving. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and some of that, I, I, I say breathing off a tank. I mean, where else do you get clean, filtered air that you get to breathe on? If I've got a cold, provided I can equalize and get down, I always feel better after a dive. That's true. I hadn't thought about the clean air, actually. Yeah. Well, I know people who have allergies who, when they dive, they, you know, that's like some allergy-free time. Yeah. And as you say, just the whole emotional side of it, it's just every dive you come up from, I'm sure the pressure just, like, I always had this really random theory that just the pressure, because we all respond to being cuddled and hugged. It's going to sound very hippie. But because mm-hmm. we respond to being cuddled and hugged, surely that pressure as you go down is like one massive cuddle. So if you have that for an hour and then you come up, you just always, I always feel better after dying. Well, you mentioned that. Now, now we'll really get off on the sidetrack, but uh, there are some, uh, some patients of, uh, some autistic patients who uh, contact, like you said, hugging, or uh, I even remember this, this uh, lady in Texas who had actually made a rig for herself where she would lay in it and she could pull an arm and it would like put her in a cocoon, kind of like she said, she called it giving herself a hug. And uh, she said that that made her feel better and made her much much more functional. So, uh, and she, she was she was she was part partially autistic. Just amazing. I'll have to see if I can find an article on that that woman. But it was a great. That was one of those programs on Discovery that I was watching. And then next up, we have a future generations of marine life will benefit from a two hundred forty thousand dollar grant awarded to Texas A and M University at Galveston Researcher. Uh, future generations of marine life including scuba divers, will benefit from the grant. 
Uh, and what it is is to expand an artificial reef system off the Texas coast. Uh, they received the grant from Texas Parks and Wildlife to expand and enhance the Vancouver Reef, located 10 miles from Freeport. Once finished, the reef system will provide new areas of living for marine organisms, create new playground for divers and underwater nooks and crannies. The reef is currently called Liberty Ship George Vancouver, uh, and it was from sinking a World War II vessel uh, during the war to supply uh, supplies to Europe and Africa, including aiding soldiers in the famous Battle of El Amin. Uh, they had later traveled to ports in Australia and New Zealand before being con- decommissioned. And in 1976, it was intentionally sunk off Freeport to form Freeport to form the reef system. So they're going from 40 acres to 160 acres. And how they're going to do it is they're going to sink concrete blocks near the ship. Uh, after they do a study, they figure out where to paste the blocks. Each block weighs. Uh, 3 to 12 tons each. They expect to have it completed by August 2012. I see big this, Mac. Block. Go ahead, Mac. Big block. Yeah, I Bigger see this, and I think uh, what what we could do with a $240,000 grant for a reef. It would be fun. Yeah, it makes me think we got to figure out some way to put, that, put money out there to get something like that. Well, who's the richest man, though? Bill Gates again? What, $49 billion? Yeah, a little bit. Well, and then his buddy Paul Allen, who actually is a scuba diver. Well, see, Buffett is next, I think, number two. He's got like 39. Well, those guys, maybe they'll chip in a couple couple of milks. Yeah. You know, they never hear anybody ever asking for money, I'm sure. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a lottery winner. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and that was one. Uh, there are some articles that, you know, sometimes we cull from the list so we don't go too long. But that kind of brings me up is that they've got one of the programs that they're trying to do is uh, eradicate uh, malaria. And one of the oh, things nice. they're doing to help eradicate malaria is you can donate money and they'll provide these uh, mosquito nettings that people can put on. So this was uh, on Twitter about the last week, week and a half. A lot of people were posting links saying you can do this. And then there was people that were against it because they say what's happening is that these nets they're making them real durable so they essentially last forever uh so that you know when you get them to wherever the sahara or you know central america where the mosquitoes are really thick uh what the people the locals are doing is they're not using mosquito netting but they're using them fish so they're fishing with this plastic netting and when they lose it it doesn't break down and it's actually catching wildlife in the water so, so the holes in that net would be tiny to catch such tiny fish. Well, and, and that was the other part of it. They said is that the fishermen who are using it were actually depleting the fry and microorganisms in the water because they only want the bigger fish, the ones they can eat. So what they would do is they would just wade in the water and net everything out and then throw that in the beach because it was clogging their net. So they're actually depleting the animals in some of these lakes. So. They must have been taking all this headgear, sewing it together, because they're not going to be fishing a lot or netting with a mosquito netting hat. I mean, I had one. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to do a lot of netting with that unless you yeah. took them and made a big one out of it. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how big they had. I don't know if it's like one that you would lay over your body, like if you're sleeping on a cot. You know. But it, it was. I just thought it was interesting how one of those things where you think you're doing so much good, and then there's another group that's convincing you that you're destroying the earth by by doing good. So. Just shows that we got to take our time and figure out what's going on. Well, it's not the, that aspect. It's just the implementation of the utilization of that aspect was done in a not very manner. Yeah. So the idea is still good, just not their application. 
And the next article, I, I always like to follow uh, dive shops, see how they do. You know, I got a, a dream of someday of having my own dive shop and not having to work in the lovely corporate world. Uh, and, and, and here's somebody who had actually followed that dream. Uh, Greenlee Scuba Shop uh, stays afloat in a tough economy. Yeah, and we'll have links again in the show notes so you can go and follow this. It's a long article, but it talks about that uh, in 1998, he started his dive center after a 25-year career. Uh, in 2005, he moved from a, from a market square to the current location, a site that featured its own 14-foot deep saltwater pool that at one point he was saying was the largest saltwater indoor pool in the world, which I don't know if that's that's actually true. It seems like I've been to Mexico and... They've got saltwater pools that are just absolutely huge and probably even deeper than that. But uh, when you consider, where is he in? I think he's in Utah. Is that where he's at? I was trying to figure it out. It's a Tortuga Bay Scuba in Greenland, but I didn't see where that was at. Colorado. He's in Colorado. So uh, they say there's 500,000 certified scuba divers in Colorado, but he was doing well. You know, he, he's, he said, yeah, maybe he made a few poor choices, and I'm guessing that, you know, looking at the pool... He probably had to have that made. Uh, so he had some money tied up, some capital tied up. And then as the the uh, travel industry started downhill, he started with the airlines, and he said that's when his business started downhill as well. It's about a year before that, everything else hit the uh, bottom of the economy. So he's actually had his building foreclosed on. He's getting ready to move, and he's actually working another job and trying just to keep everything open. Uh, he's in a 4,000-square-foot space of a 16,000-square-foot building. Uh, he said the overhead came too much. He started missing payments. He said the person worked with him for a while but came to a point where they can't continue down that path. Both him and the landlord would hope that the economy would come back and he'd be able to start paying him. It's for, the property's been foreclosed on. It's scheduled to auction in November. So... Uh, he says, actually, he's invigorated right now. He says, I'm kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I think it all might work out. So hopefully it does. Uh, you know, just sad. I'm curious about one item, though. What's that? Where he came for that number of 500,000 certified divers in Colorado? Yeah, I would agree, because didn't, uh, didn't Patty just have their 20th million yeah. diver? Yeah. And you consider Patty's probably the biggest. So let's say, let's say there's 40 million that have been. Yeah, I, I think his 500,000 is probably a little high. Yeah, because if you just said, well, if you take the top 20 states, all water boil and multiply it, you've got a lot of divers. Yeah, I'm gonna guess. I think they got the zero wrong in that. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of you know I might believe 50,000 certified divers. This this also goes down to something you had talked about years ago. You know, what is a diver? Yes. When do you stop being a diver? I mean, you may have been a certified diver, but when's the yeah. last time you go? And or how many times did you dive a year? Yeah. Tyler, what do you think about that? Is a, is a person a diver if they have a tank in their closet or if they use the tank in their closet? <laughs> well, can, can you be a diver and then become a non-diver? Because uh, what he's saying is he's, he says, well, that sounds like a lot of people's a customer base. He said, unfortunately, a lot of them haven't gone diving in five, six, ten years, all because of things started happening around 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, part of that you might be able to blame on the economy, but other of it is you've, you've got a natural attrition of people get into a hobby. I mean, we can use my dad, for example. You know, kayaking, sailboating, 
steam engine rebuilding. I mean, he goes through these hobbies, and they go through a cycle of five to six years, and then he moves on to something else. It's just, uh, I think, depending on your personality, you like to uh, do different things. You know, there's a few of us who are hardcore and, you know, probably be doing it forever, but, you know, that's not necessarily everybody. And some of those are only going to be, you know, maybe fair weather divers. You know, they're, they're only getting their diving in to go and visit Claire down in Egypt. <laughs> take me, take me. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's what we, we run into. We've talked about that many times on the show where uh, you go into the dive shops and it'd be interesting. We That's what we need to do is ask, well, maybe, maybe we should have Rick on the show one of these times and just say, of the divers he certifies, what percents he thinks he's getting, or even Rich from Diver Sync. And I think Rich has some pretty good numbers, uh, you know, compared to the industry, but... It's tough. You know, we want to see this sport grow. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the things you have to do as a, uh, a dive shop owner is you really have to watch your market and you have to grow it. If you don't grow the market, the rest of it isn't going to stay up. Yeah. Well, expensive diving, the initial aspect of getting your gear. Mm, it's not cheap. This next one, I'm, we're going to need a, a UK translator because I had a hard time following it. This is, uh, let me see here, I'm waiting for it to come up now. All those electrons aren't coming across the uh, ocean roll well. If you it's, have a hard copy, it's already there, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you, you're 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 uh, killing some trees to get yours out. Well, I you know I printed one out just so I gave So this one is from the Ormskirk and Skelmers oh, Let's say Skelmerser Skelmerser Dale. Skelmersdale. 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 Advertiser. Gosh, I can't even read anything. I think I'm thinking I need to have another drink. Uh, MP Urgent Solution to Phoenix Dive Club Power Supply Battle. Scuba divers at the Phoenix Sub Aquatic Club receive support of MP Rosier Cooper in their battle to improve their club facilities. Okay, here's, here's the beginning of the translation I need, Claire. What is MP? Oh, a member of Parliament. Ah, okay. Because uh, I was thinking MP. You're thinking was military mil- police. Military <laughs> pro- police or mounted police officer or like in Canada that would be like a, mount- a mountie. Yeah. So okay, so. Uh, so okay. Member of parliament. Yeah. Member of parliament. Okay. So that's like the um, I don't know what you have in states, but it's like, it's like I guess your governor for each state. You have. Oh, okay. Of so so the member of parliament would that be the top or is that like the? Yeah. Okay. Not the, not the prime minister, obviously, but each yes, the MP is like the equivalent of the governor for each county or each area. Oh, okay. So a county, you know, um, let's see, yeah, a little bit different. We have we have governors in the states, and then you have we we, t- we tend to have a legislative branch, which will have a Senate or a House of Representatives. Uh, at the the county level, it's usually county commissioners. It's usually like a board that does it. But that that okay, that 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 kind of makes a little bit more sense. sense. Yeah. And it says, operating from an office in the car at uh, Nye Bevan Swimming Pool, the divers are desperate to install a permanent power supply. Now, when they say power supply, is this just like electric utility? Well, I'd imagine so, but I'd have thought a swimming pool would have a power supply anyway. Maybe yeah, they mean, a, yeah. Yeah, they said, but the clubs are facing difficulties claiming council bureaucracy is printing the move and putting the future of their club at risk. As volunteers operating within a nonprofit making activity who are providing a disciplined and well-structured healthy activity that serves a community-based at the community leisure center, I would have hoped that some civic pride we provide as part of our activity would have been worth supporting. The club has more than 50 members and claims to reach an agreement with the center owners, uh, Circo, to establish the power supply, 
but club officials believe the council is being obstructive over the much-needed power supply. Peter said uh, this power supply would ensure we do not freeze ourselves or equipment over the winter months, gives us the independence and the freedom required in order to operate and deliver our special brand of leisure activity at the Leisure Center. The club had £10,000 grant from Sports England for the power supply, but if plans are not approved, they could lose the funding. MP Rosie Cooper said it ought to be possible to find a solution that meets the needs of diving club and people using the car park, preferably the sooner the better for everyone. A spokesman for Westland Lancashire Borough Council said the council is keen to support the club and assist in using the container, but for storage, not as both a meeting room and a compressor facility for refilling sub-aquatic tanks without the appropriate planning permission. She said, however, I think it's likely that an application to use the container as a meeting room and for the supply of a separate container for a compressor unit would be refused. Oh, so it sounds like, you know when you get those container trucks? Mm-hmm. And where people then convert them into buildings. It sounds like they've converted a container truck into a building which they're using for meetings and things, but it doesn't oh. actually have a supply. And you would need, for that, you'd then need planning permission to dictate what we're using that container for, because then it become a building. Okay, I see. So I understand. Does that make sense? So. Yes, it does. I was wondering, what the heck is a container? Now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. because that, that's right. So when we're talking pool, we're talking like a community pool where in the summer they've got a pool, there might be a house for the pumps, but in the winter yeah. they just winterize it and then nobody uses it until the next summer. But it sounds like scuba divers are using it maybe for training, um, but they've obviously set up this container. Yeah. which they obviously were planning to use as storage, but it's being used for metering and stuff. Yeah, so what which, they're running into is just the the yeah. use. You know, you've got a you got something that's designed for temporary use, and then you're trying to run electric to it. So, you know, unfortunately, I think we would run into similar problems here. How we get a how we get around it is we just wouldn't ask permission. Yeah, ask yeah. for forgiveness. Yeah, <laughs> we just run a big extension cord from one of the neighbors' houses. <laughs> In Egypt, if you build it out of wood, you get away with it. Anything that's built out of wood, you don't need permission for. Really? Yeah. So you'll find a lot of little guys. It's a good thing we have you here to interpret our English. Our, our, our English. <laughs> 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 Translate. Yeah. Here, our, our, we had a lot of rules against wood because uh, we had the Chicago Fire <laughs> in yeah. the late 1800s. So they, they regulate that pretty closely. Yeah, I think if it's built out of wood, they don't think it's permanent. So it doesn't need permanent permission. So you see everyone, if they want to build something sneaky on the side of their house, it's wood. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I can appreciate that. Yeah. So that yeah, was the last... Of, go ahead. A lot of hotels, that you'll see their dive centers are built out of wood because they get permission for the main hotel. And oh, we need a dive center, we need a sports center. So build that out of wood and it's suited. Well, we can, you know, and, and I, I correct myself, we can do that. What we do is you see a lot of, uh, if it doesn't have a permanent foundation, so if you want to have a little shed for your lawnmower and bikes, you can build that, but it is restricted on height and, you know, you can't pour concrete or anything for it. Yeah. It has to essentially be portable. So, you, yeah, you'll get people who will build some amazingly large portable structures. <laughs> So that, that finishes up the news. We do have one article in the potentially cool scuba gear. And when I found this one, I was thinking of UMAC. The Brownie Marine Group, which we've covered a few times before, this is a press release, announces their VS Dive System plans. 
Uh, Brownie Marine Group, a leading developer, manufacturer, distributor of highly specialized dive and safety products, announced today the start of a new campaign to inform the consumer outdoor sports dive and marine industry about greater user benefits and market potential for the patent-pending VS Variable Speed Battery-Powered Dive System. So, in short, it's a battery-powered hooker rig. Hooker rig? Am I pronouncing it right, Nick? Yes. And they said it's it can run, it can provide air up to three divers. It will automatically sense the amount of air you're breathing and adjust, which uh, I, I trust they've they've tested this out. This out. They said, and it goes from speeds zero to speeds up to 10% greater than the gasoline system. They say the electric operation is cleaner, appealing, and so much weighter, brighter, uh, broader customer use. You can expect run times of 60 to 90 minutes in a fully charged conventional battery set. So, what's your take on it, Mac? Is it something you think you would use? Oh, actually, uh, one of our club members has a battery-operated hooker rig. That's Jake. Jake, for, really? Oh, yeah. He was uh, using it for his medley checking in the shallows. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we went out uh, early in the in the year over to Pawpaw and uh, gave him a little time on it to get used to how it works. Uh, the big the hassle, I, you know, with those is... When the battery runs out, you need to change it out. So you got to be prepared to have a backup battery if you're going to do a lot of work. And on this new system they've got, they've got a quick change battery system for it. I haven't seen it, but it looks interesting. Yeah. Now, I, now the batteries are they marine batteries, uh, car batteries? What he had was a deep cycle marine. Yeah. Well, the thing that would be attractive about deep cycle marine, you know, because we've got some spots where we dive where I think a hooker rig could be quite attractive. Oh, you know Tim who was at the meeting last night? Yeah. From uh, Treasure Down Under? Yeah. Uh, that's what he's been using lately. That's what got him into diving was the lure of treasure. And uh, he's actually been using the Suka rig prior to getting totally certified as a scuba diver. And he's been doing very, very well. Huh. And in fact, uh, I believe he is developing a course for Patty, even as I speak, uh, another certification <laughs> uh, on uh, how to use a metal detector underwater. Oh, so he is? Uh, that, I, I don't know how public that is. It's public now. I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, no, we, won't, we only got our two listeners. They won't say anything. <laughs> Maybe we should have warned him when he was at the meeting that uh, don't say anything you don't want broadcast all over the world. That's true. Yeah. Uh, what did I say? That if you get the, the words around the world, just be telegraph, telephone, tell a woman, or tell this podcast. Yeah, that, that's, that's uh, certainly true. So, But that's interesting. Uh, yeah, as as we say, another uh, Patty certification. Yeah, but that's that's interesting. That's an that's an that's one of the avenues I hadn't thought about as a way of getting divers in. And actually, that, that could also be a handy little. Uh, you know, like I I keep I've, I've been doing a study recently. I, I haven't really mentioned this, so I'll keep it secret of of trying to come up with a list of businesses that complement scuba diving. Either that or for dive shop owners to expand. But, uh, you know, metal detecting would be another good one. Well, Wolf's, for example, does, in fact, rent and sell underwater metal detectors. Yeah. You just have to know. <laughs> well, you have to have an interest in it to, to know that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you got to do it kind of the other way around, too. I mean, if you were diving or driving around in Benton Harbor, would you know that they would sell metal detectors there? So, uh, also, the other part of this is uh, back on the hooker rig is... You know, we've we've done articles over the week, over the episodes of the show where we talk about snuba, where you've got uh, a hooker rig or a land-based air supply that is providing a helmet that people are in as a way of introducing people into scuba diving. You know, and and it's been real popular in Hawaii. Is that something that needs to be expanded in the other areas? The, the area again is 
I was going to say it's clear water, warm water, visibility. Yeah, uh, that's true. I think we might be missing one of those elements at least. <laughs> so, uh, but this is an interesting uh, product. So it'd be it'd, it'd be nice to see it. But I, I'm, I'm just a picturing Mac. You know, we take that in a dive boat and you put you know 30 uh, batteries in the in the back of the boat and then you could run it for a whole day. Well, that's not the way I do it, though. You know how I do it. What's that? I take two of those 300-cubic-foot cylinders, take a couple of them together with a gang, with a connection rope. I uh-huh. hook my tank to that. That's how I've always done it. <laughs> how, how many gallon, you said? No, the, the tanks, the 30-cubic-foot the tanks or the 300 ones, the ones you use for your air bank. Oh, your Cascade bottles, yeah. <laughs> you put two of those in your tank, in your in your boat, then you use your hooker rig or your hose and your regulator off of it. Uh, that's true. There's another way to do it. Yeah, because that's what I've done on the kayak. Because I hook that up to a, to a tank, that way I don't have to have my I don't have to get the off gear on and off. It's a lot easier to work with. Mm. Hmm. That is one of the hardest parts of diving, isn't it? Especially when you've got small people or young people. It's the whole lugging the kit bits. Yeah. Yeah, you, you got to get to where you love the sport to then go. You know what? I want to deal with all this stuff because, I mean, quite frankly, it is a mess to have to all the different gear and attachments and everything you do. Um, you know, I don't think I had too many problems learning how to become scuba dive, how, how to scuba dive, but it was all the getting the kit together to get the uh, you know hoses hooked up and stuff because you don't want to mess it up. Mm. And it does take five, ten dives. I mean, it was probably ten to fifteen dives before I got to where it was second nature, where I didn't have to think consciously think to know which way to face the valve as I'm putting my BC together. Yeah. And just the weight aspect. So oh, you yeah. just pop a regulator on in the mask and it goes through underwater. How fantastic is that? Although you're limited to a small area. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But there, like we're doing stuff where some of the stuff we're doing on a site where we're doing some survey work, and it seems like you just get down and get working and get stuff done, and then you got to come up. Yeah. So when when cold doesn't drive you up. <laughs> so that does it for the news. We really put a dent in that. So we'll go ahead and move on into the segment where we talk about, oh, and I'm sorry, everybody, I had my notes up. We got quite a few people have, have come into the chat room. We have uh, Dave has, has joined us. So hi, Dave. Uh, but we talked about last week's dives, which I think we all got some dives in. So we haven't heard from you in a while, Claire. Why don't you tell us um, what's been keeping you busy? Um, a few things, actually. I, the reason I couldn't come along the other week was I was teaching a course. I had I had a five-pack five open water course, which actually now that's quite, uh, quite a lot. We tend to have sort of two or three people on courses at the moment. So I had a bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> it was like, oh, I've forgotten how much hard work it is. <laughs> um, they were really lovely people and really enjoyed it and really keen, which was great. And I was especially proud of uh, there was one girl who really wasn't a strong swimmer. So we had me and her boyfriend swimming alongside her, kind of encourage her going, whoosh, and me for her swim test. So that was really cool. She you know, pulled herself through. That was really admirable. Um, and yeah, we used to, when I first started here, my first open water course that I taught was six students, but we had five days in which to do it. And um, But that's really busy. You know, we'd often teach six or seven, eight, because obviously you've got idyllic conditions here. Whereas now, as I said, we've been reduced to more like two or three, which is quite leisurely by comparison. Even doing it in four days is it's actually quite leisurely. 
So I had I had my work cut out for me. Yeah. Um, on our open water dives, it's the length of time it takes to do the skills as well. I do quite a few of them on open water dive three. And I remember looking at my watch and thinking, my God, you know, we've been in the water nearly 25 minutes. And I've just been doing skills. We've got to go off and do some swimming and get some depth. And so it was, it was good. It was rewarding and quite hard work. But, um, they all pass and they're nice people as well. So that's really good. Excellent. And the other thing is we've, um, we've had some weird jellyfish turn up. Um, I've not seen them here before. They're crown jellyfish. We normally get what's called the moon jellyfish in the spring. And so I'd be really curious to know why they're, why they're here. Um, so I'm going to look into that a little bit more. They've literally turned up in the last couple of days, loads of them. But luckily, unlike in other places where they don't have a natural predator, butterfly fish love them. I've been seeing the butterfly fish having a bit of a feast. So that's quite good. But they're actually very pretty. They've got a very quite strong blue cap and a burgundy cauliflower sort of flower at the bottom with tentacles. I don't know if they sting yet. I haven't been brave enough to test it and see if they sting. <laughs> what else has been happening? Now you said jellyfish. Are they? You said you just—they've never been there before. Or you just haven't run across them. We do get jellyfish. Um, we usually get what's called the moon jellyfish, which is very pale. It's about um, four inches in diameter. Very pale, white with a hint of pink, pink or lilac, and they don't sting at all. They're very—you know—have a little fringe of tentacles, but they don't sting. And the, all the butterfly fish absolutely adore them. They chomp on them, turtles eat them. So that's great. There's a nice natural sort of thing. But I have heard that due to global warming, uh, there's going to be more jellyfish in the world. So that's why I was a little bit concerned about this sudden appearance of this new species that I've never seen here, not in six years, the last six years. I've not seen in Sharm. And it might be that it's just a species that exists in another part of the Red Sea that has just drifted over. Uh, but apparently there's talk that it is going to become a problem in the sea in years to come with big clouds of jellyfish. So I was quite curious to see that we're getting a little cloud of jellyfish now. So I'm going to do a little bit of research on that and find out about it. Yeah, uh, what interested me on that was uh, Japan's had some problems with jellyfish. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that was happening, I think it's been the last two years they've had problems. Yeah. Uh, and, and they think it's environmental related where the wrong type of fish have been removed from the ecosystem and uh, the jellyfish in their limited spawn time are just going crazy. Yeah, quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, you know, and, it, and it's, you do worry, you see something change so drastically like this, you think, Ooh, is that? Good thing or bad thing. Well, we had um, we had a, a spate. I think it was in two thousand nine. We had a random appearance of whale sharks and mantas, which I'm certainly not going to complain about. But we get them once in a blue moon here, very very rarely, but we do get them. And that spring, we just suddenly started seeing not loads all the time, but literally every other day, someone said, "Saw a whale shark." And we had just an amazing summer where we just kept getting these sightings of whale sharks and mantas. And my worry was it's fantastic to see the whale sharks and mantas and thought, wow, what an amazing experience. 
was that maybe it's due to the fact that we've got these hotels built in a desert. They've all got big gardens. They water it sometimes with um, what you call grey water, which is actually sewage that's been treated. And that water will eventually go somewhere. It must eventually make its way into the sea. So I do worry that there maybe has caused a slight change in the environment here. Because it is meant to be desert. It's, you know, there's no natural plant life. So you get the old acacia bush and stuff like that. But it's, you know, when you look at pictures of the Red Sea, it's proper peachy rock straight into the sea. No palm trees, grass, unless you've cultivated it. So there's that slight worry that maybe we're affecting the environment. Even though I love seeing whale sharks in winters. <laughs> um, another thing that I've been doing, I did a clean-up dive. It's uh, the Paddy Dive for Debris, Dive Against Debris um, this month. So I organised a clean-up dive with the Ocean College Dive Centre where I work. And um, managed to get, including instructors, got 17 people, which was actually a bit more than I was told I was allowed. And we cleaned our house reef, which was really cool, and came up with all sorts of stuff. Uh, I think that the most interesting one was a pedal bin. Have I lost you? No, you still have me, but oh, we no. did lose Max, so if we get cut oh. off, then... Oh, well, here he's back. Ah, oh, cool. I suddenly saw my Skype bouncing. I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I'm talking to myself. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're hearing you. Cool. Uh, so yeah, the cleanup dive went really well. And actually, Mac, I took a leaf out of your book because because the whole dive for debris month they made it the whole month. I thought I'd go treasure hunting and photograph my treasure. Yeah, and I, I, I haven't found much. <laughs> well, hopefully that means that there's not a lot a lot for you to go find. That is that is true. I mean, I, I'm admittedly I'm I'm trying to clean up bits as I'm working as well. So obviously, in my book, the dive takes priority. The safety of my students or my guests obviously takes priority. So I'm not going to zigzag around trying to get rubbish. But if there's stuff that I can pick up as I'm doing that, I'm collecting it. And I've I've only taken two photographs because the other days I've literally it's one piece of tape or you know a bit of tissue. So that's good, as you say, it means there's not a huge amount of litter. So that's good. But it's not been windy. If you get a wind coming off the land, then then we'll have some litter to collect. Uh, yeah, because uh, there, there there is a program I'm starting to see people do, which is uh, they they say everybody should try and pick up two pieces of trash every time they they dive. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and Go ahead. At least, if you, at least if you aim for that, you know, every little counts. Yeah. I do that all the time. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if you ever feel like you, you Claire, you really want to get uh, a big load of, of uh, debris picked up, uh, come over here, and I guarantee you, we could we could have <laughs> in a ten minute dive, you could have more than your weight in debris. <laughs> it does. It's like everything that has ever been put in the water, people don't realize, stays there. It just doesn't break down yeah. nearly as quickly Cigarettes. as it does on land. Yeah. You think it would, don't you? Well, it you, you would. I mean, I, I've you know, you see sticks, and, and you know, fortunate for us because we like to wreck dive that they don't yeah. break down. But then when you're diving in a wreck, you're going, wait, you know, I always thought things would break down, and and. You know, you throw something in the water, it just floats to the bottom, it gets covered with sand, comes back. I guess, you know, we shouldn't be too surprised. I mean, that's how fossils form. Well, yeah, I think the key word you said was covered with sand. That's why it gets preserved. Yeah. yeah. yeah it does last longer. And 
uh, that way. But we we and it'll eventually uncover. But that trash it just goes there. And then the stuff we like to collect, the glass, uh, you know, glass is going to survive a lot longer. But uh, at least the glass actually does wear down eventually to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. If it's in like in amongst gravel stuff, yeah. plastic just Yeah, yeah, Pla- plastic seems to be the problem right now. Yeah, yeah. So I did a night dive, which was very nice, um, off our house reef as well, which is actually quite notoriously difficult to navigate. So I was, I was quite shocked. It's the first time I've actually done a night dive off that house reef because we've recently moved, and but we didn't go below eight meters because the pretty stuff is in this area and I followed step by step my exact route that I do with my Discover students, Discover Scuba Diving students because I thought right I'm going to follow this, I'm going to do natural navigation because if I stick to my route I have my compass on me obviously just in case I got distracted but um, yeah very very nice but if you go much further than 8 meters you find yourself in a like a sea of sea grass where you can very, very easily get disorientated. And, and on a night dive, seagrass isn't quite so spectacular. <laughs> People don't do the night dive for the seagrass? Yeah. The one thing you do sometimes get is you get sleeping turtles there. I, I did do one night dive on a different section of the reef, and I was on an area of seagrass, and I was like, hey, the seagrass is going on forever. They're going to hate me. So they're going to get to the end of the dive and think, well, I've dived with seagrass, what's the point of that? And luckily, we came across a sleeping turtle, which made the dive. We could have gone back straight away once we found that. Nice. <laughs> uh, um, and the other point of interest was yesterday we had, um, well, I had, as I was telling you earlier, I had possibly the most scary moment I've had on a boat, followed by a dive where we saw a hammerhead, so that was very cool. So, yeah, we had a big container ship pass by. It doesn't sound that dramatic, but it sent this wash, really steeply wave, steep, sharp wave as well, not just a gliding swell that caught us sideways and seriously rocked the boat. I thought, right, I'll stay on the dive deck and maybe stop anyone's kit from falling over on my own, sensibly. And I thought, I'll hang on to this pole. And literally, as the boat lurched over to one side, I realised all the tanks started falling down. So I, I don't know how, I actually ran. I, I must have kind of flown from the dive deck into the saloon of the boat to kind of protect myself from flying tanks and kit all on the back deck, just sliding side to side. And even in the saloon, the two tables were just sliding from one side of the room to the other. And I must admit, it did give me big sympathy for anyone who's lived through a proper earthquake, because I think that must be what it's like when the whole, you know, your base of your earth starts sliding around, you don't know what to hold on to or where to put yourself to stop yourself from getting hurt. Luckily, no, no one got hurt. Now, you, you said they blew the foghorn. They did, yeah, they sounded their foghorn. But obviously that was as it was approaching, like really from quite a distance now. A big ship and he's handling his foghorn. And we do get big container ships passing up all the time. Not, maybe if you're there for the whole day, you might see two in the day. So it's not like an uncommon thing. And yes, you'll get a bit of wash from it. But I'm guessing he was just speeding through and maybe thought, yeah, some of my horns that these guys know I'm coming through fast. But I've never experienced it quite like that. And the wave that came towards us was. Definitely about a meter high. It doesn't sound high at all, but it was very steep. 
So it literally threw us on one side. And, and we've got a big boat. You know, we were on a big boat. Um, and luckily, I, I was expecting to see water coming over the side of the boat. And, you know, the glass flew. Half our lunch ended up on the floor. So the poor chef was in the kitchen, arms and legs everywhere, trying to obviously hold himself and the lunch in one go. But it was, yeah, it was a little bit hairy. Wow. <laughs> And I'm quite amazed that no, no, no one's kit got damaged, none of the tanks got damaged, and there were a few bruises. One of the guys upstairs was briefing at the time, and one of the guests held on but lost his grip, so went sliding from one side of the, the sun deck to the other, and then back again. So it was, yeah, had a bit of a roll. Well, well glad to hear everybody was okay. So yeah. <laughs> a little bit more excitement than you really want to have on a, on a dive boat. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so my colleague was actually starting to brief the dive where we go around to the north side of one of our reefs to look for hammerheads, which is quite a challenging dive. It's a bit of a wall dive, and we go actually away from the reef out into the blue. We stay in a little bundle so that our bubbles gather, or our bubbles are in one area. And usually the sharks will get a little bit curious about the bubbles, thinking, oh, what's that? And come and have a look, see what it's about and so sometimes we do get the chance to see either a group or a single hammerhead which we did yesterday which was very very cool so that was that's hammerhead shark obviously so that was a very cool dive so two extremes of excitement in one day <laughs> very nice yeah it sounds like you had some great dives yeah that was very good mm. excellent excellent so mac how about you well, I think most of the work I've been doing is in the Niles River, St. Joe River and Niles. No plan with the bridges, and uh, I've had pretty good luck. I think a lot of the guys did get out uh, in both the uh, St. Joe River there in Niles last weekend when we were out doing wrecks. And they also got out in the uh, Marion Springs area doing some bottle work there. And, of course, we got out there on Max Rack. The guys got out there on the crane and barge. Fireboat. So a lot of guys got out into the big lake last week, last weekend. Yeah. And we did uh, the dive up in uh, Straits. Uh, we got the Stalker and the Barnum. Did a couple of different dives on the uh, Cedarville, both the bow and the stern, and the big crack in the middle now. Uh, we actually did that underwater fishing we'd been wanting to do. We did that up there in uh, the Sheboygan River. Visibility there was 20 feet plus. That's both looking down and or sideways. And uh, if you haven't tried the underwater fishing yet, you got to try it at least once. It's a gas. Nice. Nice. Yeah, we, we did get out. Uh, uh, Jim Jim Kleeman didn't get a chance to get out with me. He was supposed to go diving, and uh, he had to. He, he couldn't make it. But it was Bob, Kurt, and myself, and we went up to Saugatuck kind of one of my old stomping grounds as a kid. I used to live up that way. And uh, we went in the river. And one of the downsides about going out of Saugatuck is with no wake boat speeds, it's literally an hour from the boat dock to the end of the pier. But once you got out of the pier and waves were less than a foot, uh, we were able to get to the wreck. Each was about two miles. You know, I'm sorry, in kilometers. What's that? By about three, three kilometers, somewhere around there. <laughs> so we went and did the fireboat, which do you have any idea, Mac, why they call that the fireboat? No, I do not. Because because nope. I, I, I there was nothing fireboatish looking to me. It's a uh, uh, similar to the, uh, the the Claire that dive boat that you had pictures. Not quite that long, but kind yeah. of a houseboat with a upper deck. Uh, you know, there's a little inside area and then a lot of deck space, and it's uh, basically two pontoons. And I imagine originally had outboards on it, and uh, that sunk. And it's a nice wreck. It's I can see why it's a good beginner wreck. About 40 feet deep or uh, 
with about 10 meters. You're down there. Um, we did see some fish. There's a few rocks there, but mostly a sandy bottom. Visibility was about 15 to 20 feet. Uh, there were some fish, so if you go inside the houseboat and you shine underneath the deck, which everything's kind of been corroded, the interior has corroded, so only the steel and aluminum subframe is, is visible. But there were some catfish and uh, other fish underneath there, so that was kind of nice. Uh, visibility was much better until I got in and started stirring stuff up. It was a good <laughs> practice for uh, wreck diving interiors and, and things, but uh, we got that one. And then we ventured for about another 15 minutes to the crane. And there are some websites that have GPS coordinates on these. And they don't necessarily always ring up right where you think they should. Uh, in fact, this is one where we have a corrected coordinates that we'll be posting out there. But uh, we couldn't find it. You know, we're doing the bottom scanning, trying to see if we can find it again. Uh, zigzagged we had. We knew that the old coordinates were right, but they were a certain distance off. So we finally got around. Uh, we, we thought we saw something coming off the bottom uh, about two or three meters, dropped the anchor, um, and then we went We that's where we we're going to go down. And as I'm gearing up to go down, I look off to the right and I can see about 30 feet from me is a buoy. <laughs> so for all our focus on GPS coordinates, we had not spotted the buoy that was floating on the surface. So anyways, we decided we weren't going to pull the anchor up. We were just going to go down the anchor line and then swim over to the uh, the crane, which we presumed was what the buoy was marking. And uh, I got down there and Kurt got down there and we didn't bring the reel. So we really couldn't do a good search. Viz at this point uh, was a, uh, wasn't wasn't the greatest. Maybe uh, three meters was about all you were getting on Viz at best at that spot. It was a little shallower. So I think uh, we had a lot of wind coming off the east. But we're protected by land, which is why the waves are so short. But uh, the crane is literally a crane. It's a crane that I imagine it must have fallen off something, Mac. Have, have you heard what that was from? Off a working barge. So, but did the barge go down, or did they refloat that and take it? It sounded like they lost it in a storm. Oh. Got caught heavy and just there she went. Okay, because we couldn't, you know, we've heard people call this one the crane and barge. There's about four wrecks in this side of the state that are all named crane and barge. And this one was crane, no barge. Uh, we got down when we when we got on the crane, kind of where it's got that steel structure which all zigzags. There's this huge catfish sitting right there, like he owned it. And he was a little upset that we were down there looking at him. He stayed for about a minute and then decided, well, if you're not going to leave, I am. And he swam off. But, uh, he was he was a good, you know, three quarters of a meter. Yep. So that was nice. Uh, so a, a good a good weekend of diving. And then, Mac, did uh, anybody else get on Mac's wreck? Uh, yeah, lots of people out there for a little bit. Uh, okay. Rick Kling got out there with us. Uh, of course, Jim Schultz, he was out. Uh, Zach Schultz, uh, his, his, his boy is up in Florida, and he yep. went out. Uh, so he got to dive it. Uh, obviously, the object that you uh, found was something that he had left. <laughs> yeah, and somebody had, had done uh, kind of a modified, uh, what would you we call that, geocache? Yeah. <laughs> Where, uh, well, I, I was uh, a couple weeks ago, if uh, listeners remember, I was swimming over the wreck, and what I did is I looked down, and in the silt was this perfectly shaped round hole. And there are a few of them along the wreck where bubbles percolate up. And I'm always fascinated by how something that's been in the bottom over 100 years is still causing bubbles to percolate up and how it's in a spot, which uh, my theory, hopefully someday we'll be able to validate, is that there's there's some structure or something down there which is directing those bubbles or collecting. But anyway, so I, I saw this round circle, 
and I reached down into it, and it was a watch. Somebody had left a watch there, and it had just gone perfectly like a cookie cutter right in the sediment in the bottom, and I just happened to grab it. So I thought somebody had dropped it and lost it, but they had intentionally placed it there. So And it wasn't in the water a week. <laughs> so that <laughs> keep your eyes open, you can find something. Mm. Now, uh, we also, this week, we had our mud club meeting. So uh, we had uh, Rich Sinewick from Divers Incorporated, uh, uh, the Diver Sync podcast, and he also is uh, the current curator for the White Star Quarry. He's running concession there. So uh, that was great. He came to the meeting this week, and he talked about the Cooper River Dive that we have coming up in a few weeks. Mac and myself are going to go. I think Jim is going to go, but Cleman, we're not sure yet if he's going to make it. But uh, Mac, and and, uh, not Mac, uh, Rich. And Mac, I think Rich has given the speech, that lecture a few times, don't you think? Yeah, uh, even if you weren't going, you got involved in it. Um, his demeanor and everything was excellent. It was a good presentation you could do anywhere. And, of course, when you bring hands-on samples to play with, it enhances it. And to be able to handle something that's two and a half million years old is quite fun. So he was giving us, he was passing around fossils of uh, uh, megalodon, sharp teeth. Uh, he had manna, bones, whale bones. He was passing around so everybody got that. And uh, he did his whole speech. And at the very end, uh, he had this peanut butter jar and it was full of what looked like black just stone and he had a tray there and he opened up this gravel he poured it on the tray and this was stuff he had picked up from cooper river when he was down before and he let everybody kind of come down and go through it and uh pull the fossils out and in just any a random sampling he said he didn't seed it he just went right in the bottom and scooped it up they probably found found 30 fossils mac there's a good number we found uh, at least five very distinguishable shark teeth. Uh, one was actually very, very nice, a nice uh, small one that I had to make jewelry out of, and the mm-hmm. other ones were basically parts of the shark teeth, but those suckers were sharp. Yeah, they were. I mean, for a few million years old, they, they hold Nedge real well. <laughs> so very fascinating. Thank Rich for coming out. That was a three-hour drive from the White Star Quarry to the Mud Club meeting on Andrews University. Right. So, and we all know what a Indian love rock is now, and that anybody wants to know what that is, they have to go to his presentation. Yes, yeah. T- tell him that you want to you want to know what an Indian love stone is, and and he'll go ahead and tell you. So yeah, very very good, uh, very good meeting. And then we of course we go out as we always do at the mud club meetings, and we go and have some some chow afterwards. So how about this next weekend? You're talking Mac that we got a dive tomorrow. Uh, yeah, weather permitting, St. Joe Pier dive tomorrow, 1,800 hours, uh, meet there at Wolf's, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, yeah. If you're a little guy like me, bring your two-wheel dolly to carry your tanks out. It's a long walk. You know, I actually think I might be able to make that because I can't make it the weekend. You know my rule that I've had that in the summer nobody's allowed to get married, divorce, injured, sick, die, because I don't want funerals or weddings during the summer. And now that we're officially out of summer, guess what? So my family's getting married. So that happens this weekend. So I'm trying to calculate, <coughs> excuse me, the times where I would possibly be able to get a dive in. And I know there's some talk about going on the big lake on uh, Saturday or Sunday, and I just yeah, don't Saturday. think I've got enough time to fit one of those in. Yeah, Saturday is a direct eye, weather permitting. Weather permitting. So you know, and I would be willing to do that. The problem is, is that I have uh, because I might be able to do a morning, but there's no such thing as a morning wreck dive on that wreck. <laughs> no, but if the weather's bad, you can always hit the river with me. 
Well, that's that's possible. I, I got to go look at the schedule to see what's going to happen. But uh, but Saturday, Friday night sounds possible. I I still got to fill my tanks, which will happen tomorrow. I'll do a lunch run to fill the air tanks. But I got extra if you need it. Yeah. But uh, also that reminds me is it's it's time for me to I I, I got to get that dry suit soon. I'm starting to wear the gear out. The zebra mussels are attacking the gloves, and uh, the wetsuit's starting to tear along the neck. So I've already gooped it up a couple times. So that, that dry suit's calling me. Don't forget I've got your weight belt. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I had to put together another weight belt, so now I've got two all set up, so I've got a, a spare equally weighted. So, uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll have to pick that up. And uh, so I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the podcast this week. Uh, you can go ahead on over to our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash obsessed. You know, give us a like on the Facebook page. We'd like to hear from you. Also, show some, share some stuff. If you got some photos from diving or video, we have a few people on there. Dave, like he's in the chat room, he's posted some stuff on there. A lot of divers, so we appreciate that. If you want to leave us a comment, you can email us at the show at scubaobsessed.com, and that will get distributed around, and we'll, and we might not respond to you right away, but you'll get one uh, fairly soon. And then you can follow us on Twitter. I'm uh, at Darren Jilson. Uh, we have the Scuba Obsessed site at Scuba Obsessed, and uh, Claire, yours is uh, at Dive Bunny? Uh, yes. Yeah. And then what's your uh, Facebook fan page? My Facebook fan page is Dive Bunny site. Okay, so Dive Bunny site. So Facebook.com forward slash Dive Bunny site will it'll get yes. you over there. Or yes. you can also do is hit the Scuba Obsessed site, and the, 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 our, our likes is the Dive Bunny page, and that will also get you over to there. And then they can also visit your blog, which is uh, divebunny.com. It's divebunny.com or there's divebunny.blogspot.com. Excellent. And then also uh, we have multiple ways you can listen to this recording. We record all these, and we've, we're up to 83 episodes now. You can subscribe via iTunes. Uh, we're in the Zoom Marketplace, uh, BlackBerry Store. And just this week, we've been added to a new online streaming service, so you can now listen to us live on Stitcher Radio. So head over to stitcher.com. I believe I've got it right. And uh, if you type in the search word scuba, that will get you right to the program where you can navigate in through, I think we're in uh, hobbies and outdoor sports and that sort of thing. But Stitcher Radio, if you haven't familiar with it, that's almost like the, um, you know, like creating your own radio station. You can select your programs and automatically stream them, and then when we get the new one up, they'll just fit in. So uh, it's a great way of consuming some content. So you can go ahead and listen to us on Stitcher. Um, Claire, you got anything that you want to plug before we head off? Um, just Aqualung at the moment because I'm still loving that new ECG. But, um, yeah, very cool. I've been putting it through its paces, and it's been working very hard. Excellent. <laughs> and obviously Dive Bunny. Yeah, yeah, Dive Bunny and then Aqualung. So, and, and I think you've has, you have some on your blog, you had a few pictures of uh, that BC. I do, yes. So that, that's yeah. something it's I've... It's a Lotus, the new one. Yeah, I've I've got to upgrade my BC soon here too. I'm 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 just starting to wear everything out. You know, you you put 200 dives on something and uh, it just seems to need to be replaced. It starts to fray. Yeah, it does. It's getting a little bit of the frayed edges and on it, but uh, you know, fairly well maintained so far. So excellent. And then uh, of course, everybody you can head us on Talk Shoe. Talk Shoe or episode, uh, not episode, but show number is seven three seven five nine. 
And uh, we also had some advertisements. So we're st- we've started to add some advertisements onto the, the Scuba Obsessed page. So if you want to do some advertising, go ahead and you can email us at the show at scubaobsessed.com and we'll do some read-ons. If you have something to promote, you want to just do a shout-out to your dive club. And then also speaking of dive clubs, we actually uh, uh, hosted a site for the Florida Scuba Divers. So if you want to take a look at their website, they don't really have anything on it yet. Oh, wait, I, I say that and I just popped over. And then now they do. So what it is, it's the, uh, oh gosh, what's the name? Uh, Florida Scuba Club at Jacksonville. So their website is fscjdivers.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, if you're in the Florida area, uh, this is at Florida State College. Uh, we've just put up their website, and then they've got their calendar of events. If you're down there, there's a group you can you connect on to. I don't have any idea what their membership rules, but... Uh, you know they're they're friends of the show and we're we're hosting a site for them so go ahead and check them out. And now we're on to that time of the show. You ready? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, the, this this uh, joke has a similar source to the one of as last week. So uh, you know if you, if you people who listened last time you you can know who you can groan at. So hold on and here we go. There was a scuba diver sitting at a bar, staring at his drink with a large troublemaker biker steps up to him, grabs his drink, and gulps it down in one swig. Well, what you gonna do about it, he says menacingly, as the scuba diver suddenly bursts into tears. Come on, man, the biker says. I didn't think you'd cry. It's disgusting to see a grown man cry. The diver said, this is the worst day of my life. I'm complete failure. I was late to a meeting. My boss fired me. When I went to the parking lot, I found my car had been stolen. I don't have any insurance. I left my wallet in the cab I took home. I found my wife with another man, and then the dog bit me. So I came to this bar to work up the courage to end it all. I'll buy a drink, I drop a capsule, and sit here watching the poison dissolve, and then you show up and drink the whole thing. But enough about me. How's your day going? (laughs) (laughs) What's that? I still like it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. the delivery probably wasn't the best, but uh, yeah, there's, there's another one. So, keep those coming to us. If you have any bad scuba jokes, go ahead and send them our way. So, uh, until next week, uh, go out and get wet. And stay safe. Take care. Recording has been completed. There we go. Thank you very much. Excellent show. What we did about uh, almost an hour and a half. That was a long one. And we have uh, thanks everybody in the chat room. We had uh, Dave. I never did hear where Lisa was from. Lisa eighty fifty four. So, but she did listen to most of the program. And we got Tara's. I see is on uh, is on uh, Skype. Did you want to chat with her, Claire? Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll go ahead and add her in real quick here. Right. Hello. Hi there. Hey. How you doing? How are you doing? Very, very. <laughs> I've actually just arrived back at my desk from the pub. It's Friday afternoon, and I've uh, had a, a couple of pear ciders. So, very good. How are you guys? Doing great. Yeah, I'm good. I'm a bit busy, so I haven't been on the, um, the show for a few weeks. 
Hey, what happened with the boat yesterday? I saw you had a bit of a um, a, a wash scenario and, and gear everywhere. Just a little bit, yes. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. I mean, it was funny afterwards, but I mean, it actually happened. It was a bit. I mean, yeah, we do get rough water sometimes, and we no, I've, I've had some fairly scary moments, but that was possibly one of the, one of the most. It was really, I really thought at one point I thought the water was going to be coming over the side of the boat, and and then I, I just seriously thought I'm amazed that none of the kit got actually broken and none of the tanks got any, you know, any of their valves sheared up or anything. Because had that happened. Yeah, but I was on the back deck with all the tanks sort of flying around. So I, as I said to Darren, I have no idea how I actually made it from the dive deck or the back deck, the kitting up area, into the saloon without getting a tank landing on me. It's just tanks everywhere. <laughs> so that yeah, is it's um, <laughs> it's quite amazing. Do you get container ships going through quite often? We do, but um. Not as fast as that, and not as big as that, and and just the way we were, we were concentrating, or the crew were concentrating on the fact that a boat had just pulled away, so we were reattaching ourselves to another boat on the mooring, and it just happened that the way we were, we were properly side on to the wash, and um, luckily they didn't tie on, and he started the engine and started to try to turn the boat into the wave, but just didn't, we just didn't see it in time. And yeah, you wow. A couple of weeks ago, uh, well, a few weeks ago, we were diving out at the Mercury Islands, which are a, a group of islands off the eastern side of New Zealand at the top of the Coromandel, um, which is a little fingery piece of land that sticks out. And the weather was supposed to have settled, which it did on Friday and it did on Saturday. But when we were due to turn around and come back in, and we've got about 15, 16 nautical miles to cross to get back from the islands to the mainland, um, the weather whipped up and the boat was pretty much on its um, port side and we almost lost a set of twins out of the boat. I've never seen ever anybody move so fast <laughs> as, as the guys, and, and luckily, luckily it was a set of twelves, and they just weren't quite fat enough to fit through the railings on the deck. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a moment where you appreciate the power of the water. I think I think it's good to have that happen now and again. Just make you realise you get you get very blasé. <laughs> Exactly, and I think it's it, it's sometimes good for newer divers to see and hear about these sorts of experiences as well. We tend to, to wash over them um, or rather not talk about them so much because it, we think it might scare them, but they need to understand why we do the sorts of training that we do um, and why we spend so much time doing it because we have no control over the ocean. It is... We have to deal with whatever comes. Yeah, we have to deal with whatever comes at us, and it's not always a sunny day with 40 meters visibility. Sometimes it's a really yucky day, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. And that's, you know, actually that happened. I forgot. I forgot the. I was talking about the group of five people that I talked a couple of weeks ago, and their first because we do our confined sessions. We've got a little lagoon that's sheltered. 
And on their first confined session, I actually had to split the diet, I've forgotten about that. They were all brilliant, but um, we had a, a wind coming in from the south and I got them to the very first couple of skills and I was like, no, you know what, let's just end this now because we had a swell and we were being slid along the sands and I could, you know, I had about maybe two metres maximum visibility, so it doesn't even happen here. It sometimes gets, you know, some kind of condition. <laughs> Oh, cool. Yeah. So you've been good? Oh, very good. Very good. I've decided that it's um, now summer here in New Zealand because I started teaching my first open water course of, um, well, for the last couple of months on the weekend. So I had uh, five school students and one of their teachers. And awesome. we spent the whole weekend in the classroom in the pool and it was lots of fun. And they were great. And um, by the end of the pool sessions, they were barrel rolling and they were upside down and doing flips and bits and pieces. So their certification dives in a, in a couple of weeks and I'm going to go along with them. And um, one of the lakes that we use here for trainings finally warmed up. So it gets down to about nine degrees in, in winter. And even I can't deal with that with my five layers of herbs and yeah. two beanies and a hood. Hang up my dry suit when it gets to that sort of temperature yeah. and say, no, 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 it's fine, I'll go later. But um, I'm going to jump in this weekend and do some dry suit training with one of my students who's, she's progressing really well. Like I taught her to dive last year and she couldn't take off her mask and she's just finished her rescue diver certification and now got her dry suit um, oh, she's purchased yeah. a dry suit, so we're going to jump in and try that out. Yeah. In the meantime, the rest of my club members are in Papua New Guinea. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can see them posting updates on Facebook, and I don't want to—I don't want to read them because yeah, they're um, swimming with barracuda and huge nudie branks, and it's 31 degrees, and makes me want to cry. They, they didn't take you? <laughs> How'd that happen? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm a, a bit busy in my number one job at the moment, <clears throat> and um, considering it pays for number two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you need a you need another job to finance your instructor job. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I understand a, that's yeah, pretty common. Down here it is definitely. The um going rate for dive instructors is not really as high as it should be. Um and we don't have the resort style diving that tropical areas have. It's uh, we have more destination diving, so you go to a particular area of the country to go diving for the weekend or for a week rather than um, going to sort of live there for a week and enjoying other things aside from diving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it means that you get to, you know, hang out for a, a whole weekend and just do nothing but diving oh, mm-hmm. and a little bit of beer. And at the moment, the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, so it's beer, diving and beer. Yeah, yeah. So, what else has been happening, team? I've been quite busy. We've we've picked up business-wise. I've been working pretty much all month, and um, yeah, I'm off to Ras Mohammed tomorrow. So, got probably three dives, or today rather, later. Got three dives to do. And I'm not sure what's happening after that. Maybe this is a little more I might, um, I might actually have to have a couple of days off because I've, 
I've been diving, I think, now. It's been like eight or nine days, so I should have a day off, really. Get rid of some of the nitrogen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you did, sweetie. Darren, have you brought anything interesting up from the bottom of your lakes? Uh, we're, we're starting to hit, now that summer's winding to an end, we're starting to hit our river diving season. season. So, uh, you know, and I, sh- I shouldn't even say anything, but uh, Mac uh, ran. Uh, Claire, were you on when Mac was talking about the square box he found? Yes. <laughs> yes, and, I was. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we, we dive underneath bridges, you find all sorts of interesting things. So he found a cash register and a steel square box, which we're assuming is a safe. So we always get excited when you <gasps> oh find those. <laughs> so uh, it's too heavy for him, and it's plus it's in the really fast part of this uh, river. So uh, he's going to go back and see if he can turn it over and find out. But if not, we're going to have to do a recovery on that. Plus, we have come oh, across... Oh, so he hasn't recovered it yet. No, no. Uh, oh. He's been doing some drift dives on this river. So he starts upstream and then drift, drift dives down, which you have to be real careful because these are... we have you, mm. you can have a completely submerged tree that's been there, and it's real easy to get tangled. So, uh, And then Mac, uh, he found a, a few weeks ago a sword in the river. Uh, about a meter and a half long. Just a long sword. It was a reproduction. I doubt it's been there more than five, six years. But uh, needless to say, it's pretty cool when you can pull up a sword. Uh, and then bottles. We're just finding, you know, we, that's what we're, we do a lot in the rivers. It's a lot of bottle hunting. So for us, you know, bottles 70, 80 years old are kind of nice. We like the heavy embossed turn-of-the-century type stuff. Wow. So, yeah, there's that. And then there's a wreck we're getting out in Lake Michigan that we're doing some survey on that we'll you know, eventually have some more information to publish on that. And that's that is cool. What's the visibility like in the rivers? In the rivers, we're getting about oh two to four meters in the river, which is really good. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, in a river, we there's times of the year. Well, you can go from you can go from ten centimeters to a meter most of the time. That's typical river visibility, but we haven't had rain probably of any measurable amount in the last three weeks, and that's what clouds it up. What happens is the rains run into the storm sewers, which all fill into the rivers, and you get that sediment going, and then that's what kills your viz. So right now, uh, about about three meters is we, we call good in the river. And if I was going to um, look at these rivers up on Google Maps, where would I be looking? Uh, you could look at uh, Niles, Michigan. N-I-L-E-S, okay. Michigan, and uh, the other town is St. Joe, Michigan. And the river is the St. Joe River. And, As in uh, J-O-E? Yeah, J- J-O-S-E-P-H, the St. Oh, Joseph okay. River. Joseph and, River. Yeah, Interesting. And, that's, and that's, that runs through Michigan, Indiana, and back into Michigan. And then it uh, empties in the southeast side of Lake Michigan, uh, one of the major wow. rivers. Uh, this this area where we're in, it's called the uh, the city of Niles. It's called the city of Four Flags. It's because throughout its history, it was once property of Spain, England, uh, France, and the U.S. So there's been four different countries who, over yeah. the course of its time, have claimed it. And uh, so there's a lot of interesting things you can discover. Uh, another site that we have in the river that is an old fort, which was probably from the 1700s. So uh, you know, we do a little bit there looking for... Uh, you know, knives and muskets and other things like that. That's pretty cool. Really sorry, I'm going to have to go. Okay, well, I get a, 
a few and hours of. Also, we've got some. We're going to have some builders coming in during the day, so we're going to have to move all our furniture to one side oh. of the house before we go to work. So um, I'm going to have to go. <laughs> okay. Be late work. Oh goodness! Uh, lovely to chat to you. Okay. And I will see you guys. Make later. sure you um, post some updates over the weekend. Claire. I will do. Yes, I will. Yay! I'll, Excellent. All right. Yep. Nice talking nice. to you, Claire and Lovely Kara. Nice chat. Take care. Dive safe. Okay. See you guys. Bye. Yep. Bye. Bye. Bye.